0: america i'm jackson Bunganyi. thank you so much for joining us this evening coming up you would think that slavery is for the history books but the un says that
1: it affects an estimated 40.3 million people around the world you cannot hold someone else as property nevertheless it still happens that people are effectively treated in that way so that means that they are exploited um for somebody else's benefit that
0: is Joanna Iwa-James, she is the executive director of the anti-slavery organisation Freedom United. It's all down to COVID. Both players had COVID earlier
2: last week and they've just recovered and then they've discovered these discrepancies in their heart rhythms and what have you. So, already that's a direct impact. Senegal themselves, who are the favourites of this tournament, have failed to fill their best team.
0: Afcon 2021, history is being made in Cameroon. Jonah Yakutaga, a sports journalist and commentator, joins me from Kampala. After multiple delays due to poor preparation and the global COVID-19 pandemic, the 33rd edition of Africa's top soccer tournament, the Africa Cup of Nations, kicked off in Cameroon this month. The tournament features 24 African countries represented by some of the best soccer players in the world competing for the trophy. So we asked around the streets of Kampala, what are some of your predictions for AFCON 2021? Who got this? My name is Anthony Mbougue. I stay in Luwafu. Uh, I'm from Kampala, Uganda. Afcon is going to be a bit tough because you have teams like Senegal, Egypt, Algeria. Any of them is capable of taking it. So I think this time it will be a surprise package. Yeah, but I'm putting it on Egypt to take it. Yeah, they look like the favourites because they have people like... Salah, They have Erneni. Uh, I'm called and Perez. I predict Senegal may win the Afcon trophy, just because they have some good experienced players. They have been exposed to Afcon, because even the last time they ended at the finals, even they were won by just by one nil. And I expect this time they come with that hang- that anger and hunger to win the trophy. So if they can do to their best. They can win the trophy. Uh, First, I'm looking at Senegal having a very, very good squad. And uh, you know they haven't won this thing for, like, how many years? They haven't. They've never won it, actually. But they have a squad, and they've been edging closer, closer. So with them having the Mendes, the Mendes, I would give them a chance to win it this time. And Cameroon being the hosts playing at the final. So it's either Cameroon... Or Senegal for me. There's no Egypt this time around. Now. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. The AFCON 2021 tournament has entered its second week in Cameroon. This week, two teams from the six groups will advance to the round of 16. Over the weekend, authorities launched a massive campaign to test and vaccinate fans after football officials complained that due to COVID-19 restrictions, Only 2,000 fans stand out for matches at stadiums that sat between 20,000 to 60,000 people. Such high-profile tournaments are closely watched when it comes to officiating of matches. The actions of referees and other match officials are often scrutinized, especially if their actions are deemed to have influenced the outcome of the game. Sports reporter and commentator Jonah Byakutaga joins me from Kampala, Uganda to talk about how the matches have gone so far. And I started off by asking him about the highly publicized incident involving referee Janis Sikazwe, who officiated the match between Mali and Tunisia. The Zambian referee, Johnny Sikazwe, ended the game in the 85th
2: minute. Now, the game is supposed to end in the 90th minute. He took the teams off the pitch. The Tunisian officials protested. They then realized the mistake and came back on the pitch. He added 4 minutes and 39 seconds and still ended the match under 90 minutes, this time in the 89th minute with a few seconds. And then the Tunisian officials protested again. Um, uh, this time he led the teams off the game was done, he was escorted off the pitch with, by security and uh, as the, the Mali officials were having a press conference after the game it was interrupted by CAF officials and were told they needed to return onto the pitch, this is about 35 minutes later, and told they had to finish the game, the Tunisian team refused to come back onto the, onto the pitch because they were already in the ice baths and players had already taken their kids off and Mali were declared winners, so basically that was the controversy in that game between Mali and Tunisia. Eventually, Tunisia appealed, but Kaf threw the appeal out and said Mali had won the game because Mali reported back onto the pitch while Tunisia uh, refused to get back onto the pitch.
0: And is uh, this referee, Janice Sikazu, still officiating at the matches at the AFCON?
2: From what's been reported so far, he is still in Cameroon, which means his name is still in the heart for later games. And and just something to note, Jackson, this guy is a good referee. He refereed the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations final that Cameroon won, be, beating Egypt 2-1. He was in charge of that game. He then officiated in the World Cup 2018, two games, including Belgium up against Panama. So he is a guy with a good reputation. He's refereed at the top. Kav says that he had his trock, and that's the, his that's the standing with that. That's, that's the official explanation that it was a hit stroke okay and Jackson before moving from that referee issue we just need to emphasize that
0: this does not reflect what African football is about okay now this tournament is obviously different from the past Afcons in in you know in that it's being played during a pandemic how has this affected the players and the fans is the energy different this time around can you feel it To be fair, like any other tournament, we saw the Euros also struggle
2: with COVID cases, players being isolated in the middle of the tournament. A few teams have been affected. Gabon, for me, has been the one that's been hit the most. Their own captain, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, earlier today was sent back to England, to Arsenal, from Cameroon. They've discovered um, a few heart irregularities. Um, uh, and they've done checks. He and another teammate, Mario Lemina, who was also playing in the Premier League with Southampton a few seasons back, they've both been sent back to their respective clubs uh, to get thorough checkups because their their countries say they cannot do the thorough checks they need to do while in Cameroon. So they're trying to monitor, and it's it's all down to COVID. Both players had COVID earlier last week, and they've just recovered. And then they've discovered these discrepancies in their heart rhythms and what have you. So already, that's a direct impact. Senegal themselves who are the favourites of this tournament have failed to field their best team. The goalkeeper, Mendy, Bernard Mendy, who plays at Chelsea, is yet to play in this tournament. Their captain, Khalid Koulibaly, who plays for Napoli in the Italian Serie A, is yet to play. Nampils Mendy, who plays for Leicester City. Idrissa ghani Guy also missed the previous game, he plays for PSG with Messi. So Senegal, as much as their favourites, they've not hit the heights that everybody expects and a big part of that is down to the COVID that's hit their cup.
0: What are some of the highlights so far, some of the standout moments that will always define this tournament, whether it's the upsets or the brilliant plays on the pitch.
2: I'll go with the positives first. I'll go with the highlight for me has been Cameroon, the horse thumping Ethiopia 4-1. They fell behind yet again for the second game running and they bounced back and scored four. It's been the biggest victory, second biggest victory because Tunisia did thump Mauritania last night 4-0, uh, rather the previous night 4-0. But Cameroon thumping Ethiopia 4-1 at home. That old man, Vincent Abubaka, their captain scoring twice, is now the top scorer of the tournament with five goals. So for me, that's the highlight because they're the horse team. You want them in the tournament for as long as you can to keep... Uh, the interest in the tournament, and uh, if I go to the what you call the lowlights or the upsets for me, but also outstanding, um, I've got to say, Sierra Leone's win over the defending champions Algeria. That's a big, big shock, reminding so many people of the World Cup 2002 when Senegal upset France when they were the defending champions. This time, Sierra Leone getting that one-nil victory of Algeria. Algeria's won a run of 35 unbeaten games. They were just two games short of equaling Italy's record of 37 games unbeaten. And that run has ended. Algeria again on the receiving end of another disappointing result. They drew in their first game with Equatorial Guinea 0-0. And now for Algeria, they've got to beat Tunisia in their final game to qualify. But you've got to mention the Gambia as well. they Their debutants alongside Comoros, and we spoke about the debutants with you uh, last week, and Gambia themselves, the debutants, they're top of Group F. With four points, and they could eliminate the giant Tunisia if they beat Tunisia um, uh, in in 24 hours' time. If they beat Tunisia, Tunisia will likely, and most likely, would be heading home. So that's another big one: the Gambia being debutants in their first tournament.
0: That was sports reporter and commentator Jonah Biakutaga speaking to me from Kampala. International Labour Organization warns that human trafficking is the fastest growing crime globally and it is the third largest crime next to drugs and weapon smuggling. Human trafficking often ends up in involuntary servitude, slavery and forced labour. Modern day slavery, which is said to victimise over 40 million people, occurs in most regions and countries around the world. The practice contravenes the UN protocol to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. But traffickers employ several coercive and deceptive practices to exploit and enslave their victims, often limiting their ability to speak out or to seek help. Joanna Iwa-James is the executive director of the anti-slavery organization Freedom United. In this first part of our two-part conversation, She tells me that modern-day slavery is all around us and can sometimes involve people making our clothes, working in factories, or even serving our food. So, John, most people hear about slavery and think it's a a relic of the past. How does modern-day slavery manifest itself and how does it differ from our understanding of slavery as we read in our history books?
1: There's a really big distinction between historical slavery and what we really call contemporary forms of slavery, because uh, today there is no such thing as the ability to own another person as property, which is what historical slavery was. It is against the law in just about everywhere, um, and you cannot hold someone else as property. Nevertheless, it still happens that people are effectively treated in that way. So that means that they are exploited um, for somebody else's benefit, could be for their labour um, or um, sexually exploited. But the key thing is that one person's used as another, like they were their property. Mm. It's in today's form of what we call modern slavery or contemporary forms of slavery.
0: And what are some of the factors driving this system of modern enslavement? What kind of power dynamics or economic drivers of this system?
1: That's a really interesting question because in fact we note that modern slavery is actually pretty endemic. And modern slavery is really a catch all term to include um, forms of exploitation like human trafficking, forced labour, debt bondage, bonded labor, uh, child slavery, and uh, domestic servitude. Um, but all together we're looking at approximately best estimate is that 40 million people at any one time are living in these sorts of conditions. So is it, and that number is probably very conservative. Um, so it's at, the systems that drive it are actually pretty far reaching. We know um, when we look at the risk factors that there are definitely a, a higher number of people who are exploited, who are marginalized in society, um, who are discriminated against around the world. Um, To pick one example, domestic servitude in the Middle East. Uh, We see migrant workers travel from other parts of the world, and Africa is certainly one region, but also Southeast Asia, go to work in a household um, and are actually enslaved in domestic servitude where they're not allowed out of the house. They're working all the time for no pay, um, not fed properly, um, in really poor conditions, and not the conditions that they were promised when they left to go and take that work up.
0: And how do people often get uh, end up in these circumstances? Are they lured? Is it about deception? Is it false? How do they get into these uh, systems of enslavement?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, deception is a really big part of it, especially for human trafficking. It's actually one of the um, one of the criteria that we look at. So it's the 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 act of um, deceiving someone and then um, the way that they're moved from one place to another for the purpose of exploitation. So they may be promised an opportunity for a job, um, and when they get there, the terms and conditions are not as, as they see. And that's a very soft way, soft way of putting it because it's not just that the terms and conditions are not as they were promised. It might be entirely different. So, you know, um, we know of stories of people who um, have taken up jobs to go and work, say, for example, in a restaurant, but then find themselves actually forced into a situation of sexual exploitation um, or uh, domestic servitude. Um, so for sure, they're a big part of it is deception. Taking advantage of um, and willingness to take risk to look for better opportunities uh, often overseas, but it doesn't have to be, can be within the same country. Um, I think that we often think of human trafficking as being across borders. Um, it may be, but it isn't the only way in which people are exploited. Going back again to the question of discrimination, well, what are some of the
0: global hotspots in this fight against modern day slavery, the the ones that we we actually know that are happening, but without really fully understanding the the, the circumstances.
1: So one uh, area that's getting a lot of attention at the moment, because the scale is really quite uh, something, is the situation of the Uyghur people and other minorities in uh, the Uyghur region of Western China. Now, in the US, there's legislation that's recently been passed to ban companies from importing goods that have been produced with Uyghur forced labor. Um, The Uyghur people are a minority, and they've been uh, persecuted by the government of China and put into what's called a re-education system, but is, in fact, um, businesses... Uh, various camps and businesses that are involved producing uh, cotton goods so weaving cotton because the weak region is a big grower of cotton one of the world's uh, bigger producers of cotton Uh, weaving uh, spinning yarn uh, making goods and that then enters the global supply chain so and it's not the only product. There's also uh, a lot of exploited Uyghur labour used in the production of solar products as well. Um, This is a a real area of concern because of the scale, the number of people that are affected by this form of of, um, exploitation, this form of forced labour in in, in, in actual fact. In
0: this this case, this is a state-driven exploitation.
1: Correct, it is. And so, although in most countries in, in the world, this is very much an illegal practice. There are countries where it is still state driven, and there are definitely systems that enable um, this exploitation.
0: In case you're just joining us, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. My guest is Joanna Iwa Gems. She is the executive director of the anti slavery organization Freedom United. Now, most people think that slavery is for the history books, but the UN says that it affects an estimated 40 million people around the world. So do these countries not have laws protecting against such exploitation? What, what kind of enforcement is taking place in, in areas where it is not state-driven? Uh, and what are some of the other you know, countries where you, you would not expect it to be happening, but it is actually happening?
1: there's a couple of questions that are very important that I'd like to pull out from from, um, what you've just asked and I think one of the things we see is a competition in priorities so for example um, in the UK there is legislation against modern slavery but there is also a strong political will to clamp down on immigration um, and those two um, objectives don't align um, in fact the battle, as the current government sees it, against immigration harms people who have been exploited in modern slavery. Because, um, for example, some of those people who've been exploited and brought into the UK are then persecuted for breaking immigration rules when actually they should be being rehabilitated as a victim of slavery. So their status, under immigration law is prioritized over their experience of this very serious human rights abuse so that's an example of how uh, despite legislation existing against modern slavery we're still seeing systems that actually um, don't support the abolishment of this form of exploitation Uh, and again of course the pushing down on um, illegal migration also pushes people into taking bigger risks because if there are no legal migration safe legal migration routes for people to take they may be uh, they're more likely to be looking for other opportunities that aren't uh they aren't all about exploitation for sure some people are knowingly going into um a transaction which is just about crossing a, a Yeah, to move to get to get to another place, which is if they're escaping persecution, that's completely legal. Um, But a safe legal migration route would stop uh, in some parts of the world. I mean, I'm thinking particularly say, for example, uh, say from Cambodia or Myanmar into Thailand would enable them to travel and take up decent employment without turning to people who may be allegedly being Recruiters, but in fact, be traffickers. And there's a piece of legislation actually in the in California that that ha, we've pushed through the assembly and the California Senate that's currently with the governor to sign, asking the governor to register foreign labor contractors to make it harder for them to pose as recruiters when they're actually effectively trafficking people from Mexico um, into California into forced labor. How do our lives
0: connect or intersect with modern day slavery. Could it be happening in broad daylight in our neighbourhoods? What are some of the indicators that we should be looking out for, and what should we do?
1: Yeah, I think it is um, it's, it's a lot more embedded in our lives than we'd like to think. I mean, if not through the products that we buy um, that could be produced by people in forced labour, um, or the goods that we use in in the systems that we're a part of, and those products may not necessarily be just because they've been produced um, overseas in in, in a country that we might associate with poor labor conditions. In the US, for example, um, under the US Constitution, it is still possible under Article 13 to use slavery as a punishment for a crime, right? So we actually have a whole prison system in the US, which um, actually facilitate through the legal system the ability to exploit inmates to produce goods um, for the market that we might then be going and buying and we don't always know about that um, unless we do the research and we're campaigning to get that 13th amendment repealed and we're campaigning as well against the investment into the private prison sector where this type of exploitation is happening and it is pretty endemic Now, in terms of, uh, and and I think this is a more serious issue, actually, than the neighbourhood, because I think, um, yes, I think it's important, of course, that we look after ourselves. We look at, uh, you know, if we do have concerns about, say, um, somebody working in a household that, you know, we rarely see uh, and and we wonder if, you know, we hear um, noises and we have concerns. Yes, Of course, we should report it. But I'm not as concerned about that as the scale of the problem that's actually out there before our eyes that really we need to be tackling as a priority because that's affecting much more people. And it's also disproportionately affecting uh, in the US, for example, black and brown people. We know they are the ones who are imprisoned much more. Um, and they're, so they're part of that economic system that the 13th Amendment enables um. And facilitate.
0: That is Joanna iwa James. She is the executive director at Freedom United, an anti-slavery organization. I reached her in Kigali, Rwanda. Nigeria has lifted a seven-month ban on the popular social media platform Twitter, which it imposed after the site deleted a tweet from President Mohamedou Buhari. Nigerian authorities at the time said that Twitter was using its platform for, quote, activities that were capable of undermining Nigeria's corporate existence. Adeola Odunowo is a Nigerian business analyst and entrepreneur. After the lifting of the ban was announced, he spoke to a number of Nigerians, especially business owners in Lagos. He tells me that many of them are welcoming the lifting of the ban. So, Adiola, just to remind uh, our listeners, why was Twitter banned in Nigeria in the first place and what kind of concessions uh, were made for it to be allowed to operate in the country?
3: Nigerian government suspended the social media firm last June after the president tweeted about the 1967 Nigerian Civil War and the concessions that Twitter had to meet before, being a, before the ban could be lifted was to register in Nigeria, appoint a designated country representative, also comply with the tax obligations in Nigeria. Uh, Twitter also had to enroll in its portal in Nigeria for direct communication between government officials and Twitter. And the government also wanted Twitter to act respectfully in accordance to the rules and regulations of Nigeria.
0: So is it fair to say that Nigerians have not been using Twitter this whole time since it was banned?
3: Many Nigerians, especially the youths, had continued to access the Twitter platform using virtual private networks, VPNs, but uh, most corporate organizations and media outfits uh, obeyed the government's um order to ban twitter
0: and how did the twitter ban affect life for nigerians especially those that were using it and how did the twitter ban affect life in the country uh, i guess f- especially for those who were using
3: it professionally the ban cost the nigerian economy millions of dollars in fact a financial analyst Put the estimated loss to the economy at over 700 billion naira. I spoke to Shelly Adekoya, an entrepreneur based in Lagos. This is what he had to say. We'll be glad the Twitter ban is off because in the last few months it has been really a very big headache for our business. We have lost many customers. Uh, we may be able to reach out to our customers. Our business involves training equipment and we do a lot of uh, target audiencing using the Twitter. And when the Twitter has been off, we've been cut off from our customers. Uh, of course, it has cost us millions in the last few months. Uh, but now with the Twitter ban being off, uh, we're looking forward to having our customers. And I also spoke to Tony Ademayati, a data scientist and digital marketer. Listen to what she had to say about the effect of Twitter ban on our business. Prior to the Twitter ban, I used Twitter as a space to run campaigns and adverts and as well as connect with clients. The moment the ban was placed on Twitter, I had issues with running my campaigns. Um, I couldn't deliver most of the projects I had at hand and due to that, I lost clients and even lost funds. Now that Twitter is back, I am hoping to use Twitter again as a tool to further um, help strengthen my brand and as well get more clients and of course make more money. Thanks. And do you have an idea
0: what prompted the lifting of the ban? Was uh, President Buhari under any internal pressure of any kind to restore Twitter?
3: Well, really, especially considering the fact that there has been several back-and-forth conversations between the federal government and the Twitter team. But the upcoming elections in 2023 might also be a pointer to the lifting of ban since Twitter plays a very significant role in disseminating information to the public.
0: That was Adeola Odunowo, a Nigerian business analyst and entrepreneur that reached him in Lagos, Nigeria. And that's it for our show. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you are online via our podcast platform on voanews.com or via FM station or shortwave anywhere around the world. Remember to connect with us on social media at VOA Upfront. I'm Jackson Vonganyi. Till next time, my friends.
3: This is a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. The World Health Organization and Africa Centre for Disease Control say we all can help fight the global pandemic by frequently washing our hands with soap and water or using hand sanitizers. For more information on protecting yourself and others, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa Centre for Disease Control. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. (laughs) Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. (laughs) Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. This is VOA News.